Welcome to this Market Commentator podcast. Our guest this week is Shlela Gyose. He is the Chief Investment Officer of First Avenue Investment. Shlela, welcome to the show. We have certainly seen a very interesting January. Um, we spoke a year ago and then you highlighted that volatility in local and international markets uh, you know, is the new normal. But have you ever contemplated the volatility we've seen over the past two months? You know, I think that with the experience you've seen some of volatility before, you just don't, you, you just never get used to it. And every time it shows up, it feels like the first time. Uh, yes, it has been quite turbulent. But surely in this modern age, you know, you do a lot more research that, than you did uh, a few decades ago. Um, and you should anticipate surprises in the market. Why, why are we still seeing so much volatility? I think because in investors have different approaches towards the market. Uh, s- some investors, for instance, love to own companies that are cyclical uh, because they give them outstanding returns over short periods of time. But the challenge there is you have to know when and, and how to sell, which always catches people off guard and hence the volatility. Another approach is the one we take, which is we never ever want to buy companies that are cyclical. At least we, w- we buy companies that are less cyclical than the market. Uh, and you know, so when volatility does happen, we don't have a desire to sell. We don't have a desire to rush out. We actually have a desire to stay a little longer, if not a lot longer, in those companies. But we saw an interesting trend last year. We saw a lot of pressure on the market, although we the overall performance was flat. Um, some shares, some of the big conservative stocks um, did re- really well, mm. mostly because uh, people were selling uh, other more risky stocks and putting their money in these safe havens. How did that impact the dynamics of the market? Sure. I mean, th- this is a point that I'm referring to, that if you have been anticipating economic growth and you think that the companies, that there are companies that are leverage to economic growth and you hold those because you think you're going to get outsized returns. Well, if economic growth turns down before you get your before you get your returns or before you sell, then you'll be in a rush to get out the door. Um, but you know that's a really, really dangerous point to make. The most important thing is when volatility does return because of people changing their minds, because they're reading their economic situation uh, differently for the first time, or because the economic situation is surprising them. When it does happen, guess what? Investors, like every human being who's drowning, want nothing more than to breathe. They want oxygen, and oxygen is certainty in the markets. And you get certainty from certain quality companies, the defensive type companies that, you know, that we spoke about. And they're defensive not because they have anything to do with beer, for instance, or, or cigarettes, but, but they're defensive because of the um, structural advantages or the way they've, 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 they've arranged their operations around themselves uh, so that their earnings are buffered from economic conditions or macroeconomic factors like interest rates, like inflation, and so on and so forth. But how will this pan out? What will happen this year to those companies? Um, you know, the, we are seeing a sell down uh, across the world. We've seen a, a you know, a, you know, a sell down in South Africa as well. Mm-hmm. Um, some of those big companies have come back. How will those? Can you leave your money there for oh, yeah. the, the short term? And you should. And you should. Uh, look, equities reflect uh, the best opportunity or the best vehicle to create wealth, and I refer to real wealth. Wealth above inflation by miles. And why do they do that? Because they reflect and represent ownership in companies that drive the economy. 
Now, you want companies that drive the economy, not the ones that are cyclical with the economy. And if you drive the economy and you give the economy not its ambiance, but its structure over a long period of time, you really want to own those companies because those are the companies that will take all inflationary pressures, price them in, and, 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 and you know, forward them to the customer, pass them on to the customer, and take the prices from the customer and share them with you by way of, number one, entrenching their own competitive advantages, but number two, dividends. So you want to hold those. Tell me, if you don't hold those, what are you going to hold? What, what else is there? How else can you create wealth? There is no other way. I immediately think of uh, British American Tibet, AB Imbef, um, yes. Richemont, uh, yeah. you know, Naspers. Um, yeah. What other companies sh- falls within well, that, that I mean, category? Just, just look at just the recent results in the midst of turmoil by some of the retailers. And the one we hold and we think very highly of is Woolworths. You know, to have, you know, that the definition of pricing power is if you can get price increases along with volume increases. And Woolworths got that. They got volume increases, they got pricing increases. In economics, those two never go together. When you have pricing increases, your volume declines, right? But, um, you know, Woolworths put that up. And they've been putting these up, these kind of statistics. And with their positioning now in the Southern Hemisphere, offering uh, Southern Hemisphere type fashion across uh, the world, that's going to be fantastic. They're going to keep doing this. Um, so it's not necessarily just cigarettes or beer, but it's also human ingenuity by some companies that may look cyclical but don't act cyclical. I will come back to the actual you know, shares you own in the fund. Um, but we also see, saw late last year a uh, big political turmoil in South Africa, which sent the rand from around 1440 uh, uh, to the current 60, 16 rand 50 against the US dollar. Yeah. How does that change the dynamics? You know, it changes the dynamics if you are a company that is beholden to the economic cycle, to macroeconomic factors, because you have to figure it out now. And if you don't have enough cash, you have to look at your shareholders, uh, as lawmen did, uh, raise capital, as most uh, resource companies will, most construction companies will. You know, the longer we drive through this desert, uh, the more they'll go through their four sorts of wheels and spare tires and need more. Uh, But other than that, if you stay away from those kind of companies, you don't have to worry about those dynamics. Why? Because you continue to give the global economy a structure. The human being is not going to die. Let's just get that clear. We'll be here. We'll be demanding goods and services. And some companies will earn our custom. Those are the companies you want to own, you want to hold, because they'll share the proceeds of that custom with you by way of continued entrenchment in the economy as well as dividends. You know, we did a study going back to 1960. And we took every cataclysmic event you can think of, and we took about 10 events per 20 year frame, so 1960 to 1980. And we had, uh, you know, the devaluations of the RAND. We had economic riot, uh, we had political riots. We had, uh, you know, stock market declines. We had all sorts of things, recessions in a row. From 1960, to today, and the stock market today has performed admirably relative to 1960. It's created so much wealth for so many people. But within that, it's not every company that has done very well. Some companies have gone the way of the flesh, have, have died. Other companies have persisted and persevered. You've got to find those companies, and that's where the research comes in, and that's what, what you, that's what you get paid to do. Find those, invest in those, and hold those. 
Well, that brings the the, the and that brings the debate back to active versus passive. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, in a market like this, it is a stock pickers market. Mm-hmm. Um, passive investments, uh, you know, uh, could be in, in, in more risky in this environment than in in, in a bull market. Yes, uh, obviously, absolutely. How do you, uh, you know, what what is your strategy in this market? How what what are your active decisions? Yeah, I mean, you're completely right that passive is wonderful when everything is going up. And, when, and, and things tend to go up in five to seven year clips. And at that time, you could be lulled into false sense of security, where passive strategies or the market, so, so to speak, seems to do as well as every active fund, if not better than most active funds, in fact. And in fact, they'll be so much better because you're paying less. At that point, the, um, the sales pitch by passive folks rises like an elevator, and you're told that it, it is you're creating wealth by paying nothing until the market turns. And when the market turns, you get to appreciate at that point who you really are. Did you, do you value your losses more than your gains or your gains more than your losses? And as you discover that for yourself as an individual, you go back to doing the difficult work, which is, you know what, I think I want active investments because the active investments give me the opportunity not to fall like the market. And then you go about picking which ones you want which fund managers you want, which funds you want, for instance, or which stocks you want. Well, if you look at your retail fund, um, you actually did a lot of uh, changes over the last 18 months or mm-hmm. so. Mm-hmm. Um, and the biggest one was to get out of, uh, or largely get out of commodities and to move into um, and NASPAS and, and Woolworths. Um, why did you take the decision, first of all, to get out of commodities? You sold down BHP, Billiton, and Sassel quite aggressively. Sure. You know, there was a time uh, early on last year where the market, I think it was, I think it was about March or April, where the market did something really intriguing. It sold MediClinic down, it sold First Run down, it sold uh, RMI down, it sold Clicks down. Uh, you know, it sold a few of, of, of the companies that we consider to be really civilized companies, it sold them down. In that two week period, we took, that, we took the decision to quote unquote high grade our port- portfolio meaning that you're increasing the quality of, quality of your portfolio by paying less without the commensurate volatility that would come with a built-in OSSO. So we switched. We took close to 18% of the portfolio out of those two companies. It wasn't a whole slew of resources. 18% out of built-in and SSO. When was that? Around, eight, around April or March last year. We took uh, uh, 18% out of those two, and we put it across clicks across MediClinic, across First Rent, uh, and a few other names uh, that, that I may not recall now, and indeed increased our holding in, uh, in NASPERS. And that has been wonderful. Discovery, by the way, is one of them, and that has been wonderful because as we see, what, what has happened is this. We have not only gotten a growth in dividends in excess of the earnings that were reported by those companies, we have gotten less volatility from those companies, and we've gotten far longer staying power in those companies than you'll ever get in resource companies. And you avoided the big sell down in the commodity sector. Yes, of course. And investing, active investing, is always, at least this is how we think of it, if we can get the best and the highest quality possible at lower prices, we will. We'll do, we'll, we'll, we'll do that without hesitation. We'll do that in a heartbeat. What that entails, though, it gives you a bit of homework. Wait for the opportunity. Wait for it. 
Wait for it because it's worth it. And when that opportunity shows up to high grade, do it. And after you do it, do not look back. The commodity sector has been sold down. Are you looking to get back in there? We, we, we lagged only two companies in that sector, as you know, Sasol and Billiton, which, by the way, Sasol has performed admirably than, relative to Billiton, by the way. But Billiton is uh, a highly, highly civilized company. We still own a small percentage of Billiton. If there's any one of those companies that we'd like to go into, it is BHP Billiton. We'll go in. We may not go into the same extent now because, obviously, that money has been put to work in companies that, as I say, ha- you know, have much, much longer staying power. But the capital allocation culture in BHP Billiton is exemplary. It, it is second to none. So, uh, you know, at some point we'll, we'll look to get into it. Maybe not. Maybe we will. But we're not in a rush. There's nothing that we hold which we think currently is overvalued and requires us to sell out of it to get into Billiton or Sassel. No. The the top um, counters in your portfolio um, are all companies that um, earn a lot of money offshore. Mm-hmm. Um, we've seen the you know the, the sharp devaluation of the currency, uh, but not all of these shares have really shown the hedge um, attributes. Mm-hmm. Uh, are you worried about uh, a changing you know uh, trend that uh, some companies are not that regarded as the the big rand hedges yeah. anymore? You know, I think the word rand hedge is the least insightful word or f- phrase. It's not a word, it's two words. It's the least insightful phrase in the country, in the market. It is completely unimportant, the word rent hedge. It is completely unimportant. Never, ever do things for rent hedge. Because uh, if you did, you might buy companies that, that, uh, that, you know, that might kill you, uh, that, are, that are exposed to commodities uh, or the commodity cycle like Grinrod, uh, but then that never happens. Um, the most important thing is this. The companies that you see that are quote-unquote rent hedge are also highly intelligent companies. You know, intelligence is the one asset that we know is responsible for successful companies, but it's not on the balance sheet. That's the intelligence paradox. Human ingenuity is never on the balance sheet. We look at a balance sheet of any smart company. In fact, the net asset value goes down. Uh, it's very tiny, it's very small relative to the market value. So you capture human ingenuity on the stock market. You don't capture it on balance sheet, even though it resides within the company. So the companies you mentioned are companies that have that have monopolized an inordinate, a disproportionate amount of human, human ingenuity in South Africa. They've exported that particular quality globally and happened to earn dollars or euros or pounds as a consequence. But they didn't go out and say, we need to own dollars, or we need to invest in dollar, pound, or euro environments in order to hedge against the rent. No, they've exported their competitive advantage. So for us, we're purchasing the type of human ingenuity that is rare, that is actually highly competitive globally, that may not find that much expression in South Africa anymore because the economy isn't shifting as much as it should. Can you expand, uh, well, how do you measure that ingenuity? Um, is it just in random sense, or do you have another metric to, to try and, and foresee it? You know, what the, I think you referred to what happened in NASPAS. Um, excellent. That's excellent. Um, how, how do you measure that? Yes. So this is now what we get paid to do at First Avenue. Our mousetrap, or our valuation methodology, really captures what we first identify qualitatively as a competitive advantage or a structural advantage or an economic moat. An economic moat is really capital allocation into something 
that buffers your earnings and your free cash flow, let alone not only that, but also your market position against competition and against regulation. So it buffers you against that so that you monopolize a profit pool in your industry for a long period of time to come. Now, it sounds easy to say this, but when AEB InBev looks at SAB and says, God, you know, I want that. They don't, they don't I mean, they're hedging. What, what, are they, what, are, what are they doing? Rand hedge or dollar hedge? Do you think they really want RANs because RANs are fantastic? No, they want human intelligence. You see that? So the RAND hedge actually works the other way. If ABMBF can recognize human ingenuity in South Africa that's based in RANs, and in Nigeria where, and in Kenya, and in all the other places where SAB has operations in local currencies, they don't care about the currencies. They care about the competitive advantage, human ingenuity, the intelligence that you don't see on the balance sheet, but that allows South African breweries to monopolize the propolitics industry. But investors uh, see rands. Um, obviously, uh, the return in rands is what, what we, it's, it's a currency in South Africa. Yeah. Um, how, how should investors then look at it? Don't spend time thinking about that. For the last 111 years, whether you splice this over the full 111 years, 50 years, 75 years, 20 years, South Africa is the third best performing stock market in the world in dollar terms. So, what does I say about the RAND thesis? It says more, actually, about, in, about the intelligence, the most accretive capital allocation that you see in management of South African companies. It says more about that than it says about the country. Look, the biggest asset we have in this country, the biggest asset, the greatest asset we have is our capital markets. If China had what we had, if the Chinese stock market worked like this, China would be like America. If we had the human ingenuity that we see China displaying, we will be like America. But the beautiful thing is we have this, and this stock market is fantastic because it contains human ingenuity at a level that is admirable, or shall I say this quantitatively, that is the third best in the world over 111 years. Uh, thank you. That was really an inspiring interview. That was Shlelo Giosi, the Chief Investment Officer of First Avenue Investments.